Hi, I'm Tom Woods, and you're listening to the Libertarian Christian Podcast. Welcome to the show that gets Christians thinking about faith and politics. Get ready to challenge the statist quo, expand your imagination, and tackle controversy head on. Let's stand together at the intersection of faith and freedom. It's time for the Libertarian Christian Podcast. Welcome to another episode of the Libertarian Christian Podcast, a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute. I am your host, Doug Stewart, and I have back on the show Kurt Willems, who is a pastor, church planter, writer, and host of the Theology Curator Podcast. He has an MDiv degree from Fresno Pacific Biblical Seminary and an MA in Comparative Religion from the University of Washington. He and his wife, Lauren, have two daughters, and they reside in Seattle, Washington, And the reason I'm having him on, in fact, so soon after we just had him on to talk about his podcast series, Jesus Politics, is because he just published a book called Echoing Hope, How the Humanity of Jesus Redeems Our Pain. So we're going to talk about that. Kurt, I don't think I've ever scheduled two times in one email. And so this is our second time that we're we're having a discussion together. Thanks for joining us again. Hey, it's an honor, honestly. I'm happy to be here. Love our last conversation and our ongoing dialogue, Doug, it's just great. So glad to have an excuse to talk to you again. Yeah, cool. We'll have to come up with some more in the in the near future. <laughs> yeah, I'm good with that. So I think you're probably going to be maybe the only, but definitely the first guest that I'm going to tell this to about reading your book. And you're, you know, because of what I've emailed you, you know, since our last conversation, mm. this is actually a really big compliment. But reading your book was painful. Hmm. I say that sort of tongue in cheek, but that's part of my personality. Um, in yeah, that, like, yeah. sometimes there's this like veneer of something, and when I'm reading your book, I'm just like, oh my goodness, there's more to deal with personally than I expected to. I, yeah. you know, looked at look forward to reading your book because it talked about the humanity of Jesus on a theological stance, which we'll talk about here in a minute. That is something that I haven't related to as much. You know, in my mind, Jesus was God, and that was a really super important thing for us to sort of acknowledge theologically and recognize, you know, in our personal walk. Mm -hmm. But there's a quote in the book that sort of encapsulates why, you know, I compliment your, your work on this in the way that I do. Real life with Jesus requires owning the parts of our lives that we're tempted to ignore, neglect, or keep hidden so he can guide us to becoming more like him. Mm. And you know, I had the I had to awkwardly read this book in preparation for an interview and a discussion, and also because I was personally looking forward to it. But it kind of hit me a different way than I expected. And I, I think God's using you in my mm. life for doing that. When I was growing up, it seemed like we had to make sure that we made it very clear to people we were evangelizing, that we, you know, as kids, my parents in, instilled this. My leaders were like, Jesus is God. Jesus is God. Jesus is God. And we acknowledge that Jesus is human. And, you know, I help teach some fifth and sixth graders in our church. And, you know, they're always sort of trying to do the math. They're like, well, how is he 100% God and 100% human? That's 200%. Like, hmm. maybe he was more like 60% God and 40% human. You're like, you have to make sure that, like, he's kind of, he's both, but he's a little more God than he is human. So <laughs> it's just, yeah, it's just a funny yeah. thing. It's like, well, we, totally. have to hold this, we have to hold this tension. So I just want you to know that your book, I know it's going to be used by God to reach people, to help them heal from their pain. And and we'll get through some other things. This isn't just a book about healing from pain, although it is certainly a book about that. 
So I want to give you a little opportunity to share like, what was the origins of this book? I mean, you talk about a lot of theology on your podcast and this one, this is, this certainly talks theology, but it's also a very personal book too, in ways that I just described and also for you as the writer. Yeah. Wow. Wow. Um, I think that was the longest introduction before the first question I've ever done I, on a podcast. Kurt. No, I, I, thank you. I mean, thank you so much for uh, your encouragement. And look, you're one of the first dozen or two people outside of my immediate circle who have read this. So when I heard that, that response, it was like, oh, <laughs> oh, okay, okay. Well, that's, that's interesting, God. Okay. You know, so, so I'm still mm. processing your response with a lot of gratitude. And um, yeah, so thank you for that. You know, this book, I've wanted to be an author for a very long time. That's something I've always had in mind and believed that a day would come when I would write a book, you know, this abstract thing called a book or a book. And I didn't know what that journey would be like. I, I got my first agent like in 2011 because of my blog. Then that person decided not to be an agent anymore. So I handed off to a new agent and we had good rapport, but we just didn't like land anywhere in those early years and uh, had one book deal offer that just wasn't one I ended up going for. And over the years, just thought maybe someday I'll get a shot at actually trying to write a book. In those days, I, I wouldn't have written a book like this. And so I'm so glad, like in retrospect, like so glad it took about a decade almost to finally put a book out into the world. This particular book began as a project about the humanity of Jesus being our model for how to live and how to flourish. I mean, that, that's what the book was about. Originally, the title was going to be Human Like Jesus. And the idea was, as you look at Jesus, you see the perfect model for what it means to be fully alive, fully reflective of God's image in the world, basically a return to the garden, you know, like Jesus is the second Adam, all of that image of God stuff. That's definitely still in the book, but immediate feedback I got on, and that, you know, we made a book proposal. Uh, my current agent, Rochelle Gardner, was working on, working with me at that point already. And we had a great book proposal and we had positive feedback. But what we got from, especially one publisher in particular that um, I'm grateful for this, feedback, they said, if you get someone inside your book, they're going to enjoy your content. But there's nothing here as far as what you're packaging, so to speak, that really gives people a reason to care about the humanity of Jesus besides the world of ideas. So what's that pain, not pain point, it becomes pain, right? But what's that touch point mm -hmm. to readers to enter into their story and, and start asking like, why does the humanity of Jesus even matter? And that's where it was left. I was sad. I mean, I was just like, oh man, I thought I finally was going to get this book deal thing worked out. Mm. You know, this is like early 2018 and maybe late, I don't know when it was. It was 2018-ish. Let's just say that. Finally, I found myself, you know, like, okay, well, what do I do, Lord? And I sat with it and I processed in my mind. And, and one day I was sitting in front of my desk, I think, and I'm just sitting here and I'm like, wait a second, it's pain. Pain is the thing that makes Jesus's humanity compelling because um, when God becomes human, it's radical. I mean, it's utterly radical that God would not just become human and 
you know, hey, everyone, I'm God and a bot or whatever, and I'm going to show you how perfection looks. It's I'm going to live in the hardest kind of context, you know, under the thumb of the Roman Empire, and I'm going to suffer. I'm going to feel things. I'm going to experience real life. Then I'm going to let this world do its worst to me. And of course, after that all happens, there's a resurrection. And, and all of those points matter. So what I realized was, wait a second, Jesus invites us to be more human like him. And that has to include living with, owning, and processing our pain because Jesus had to do that. Mm. You know? And so that became this connection point. And I started thinking about my own story. Um, you know, we'll probably get into some of that, but my own pain as a kid and even some adulthood moments. And uh, out started flowing this new book called Echoing Hope. And I'm uh, holding a copy of it in my hands, which is super surreal. I've had these books for about four and a half days now. And I can tell you that it gives me a lot of joy. I don't know. It's, it's not the book I would have written any time sooner in my life, but Hmm. It is definitely now at this moment giving me joy to hold it. Yeah. Well, congrats, because I, I know that that's a major accomplishment. And even, you know, hearing what the first, I don't call it the first version, what it, the book you said that got rejected and what I've what I've read, there's definitely, I could definitely say that this is the better book. And I, I obviously you agree. Oh, yeah. How much of it was, um, was there not much about pain in the original draft, if you will? Yeah, so there was some, but it wasn't a focal point, right? Mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. so what made the original draft connect to this one? Um, and in fact, I'm pretty sure versions of those chapters find themselves in this book because I was able to reframe them. Yeah. But, uh, you know, the closest I get, I have a chapter in here about, um, I think it's called The Process of Presence. And it's all about the struggle to be present. And that chapter almost like went untouched when it came into this book and, Hmm. you know, some refining, some clarity stuff. But for the most part, it's very much the same chapter. And that talks about my struggle to be present to my kid, you know, and going to therapy and that kind of stuff. So there was always, there was always this like vulnerable streak in there, but it wasn't focused. So, you know, when you're, you're trying to sell a book called Human Like Jesus, um, how are they going to, how's anyone going to yeah. come to a book like that knowing that I have these intimate kinds of stories in there that right. are yeah. hopefully open them up to seeing Jesus differently? Whereas with Echoing Hope, it's, it's very much a book about the tension between pain and hope. Yeah. And uh, I did not have any childhood stories of abuse in that original draft or anything like that. So this, uh, this is very much. It's in the spirit of the first book, but that first book just wasn't ready yet and it needed some love. And uh, pain was the love that it needed, ironically. Hmm. It's funny. I actually wrote this this question down, you know, whether or not talking about the pain made it easier to write the book or not. And it sounds like you sort of led me to ask that next because it's like it helped you write a better book. At the same time, it was probably more painful to sort of relive those memories. Yeah. And and literally not just relive them, but you have to contemplate them and think about them and then go back and edit them and like write them and type them out. And Hmm. yeah. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. It really was in in ways that surprised me at times, depending on which story I was writing down. Mm -hmm. And I tried to be pretty vulnerable with the reader. So 
if I'm feeling emotion as I'm typing, often I'll actually just give voice to that because mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I part of writing a book like this is it's another layer of the you know the therapeutic part of discipleship with Jesus. You know, there's this other it was formational. And what I'm doing is I'm saying, here's part of my formation process. You can read it if you want. (laughs) So no, it was, it was hard on several points. And then I did the audio book about a month ago. I read that in studio and that was a reminder of just how tender some of these things are. The childhood stuff, definitely tender. And then there's a chapter towards the back end of the book where I talk about my dog and my uncle and my grandpa and death and suffering and that stuff. And that um, whoever hears the audio version will hear me crying pretty much Mm. uh, through a major part of that reading. And I'm okay with that. And I'm not like a guy who I, I can get touched emotionally, no doubt, but I'm not. You know, I, I've been around like pastors, for instance, who every other sermon they tear up because they're touched by something beautiful usually, but they just tear up really easily. Mm-hmm. I'm not that person. Uh, if I tear up, it's like, whoa, <laughs> this just happened. Yeah. You know, and and that's uh, yeah. So that that was an interesting part of uh, the uh, the audiobook. So I say all of that to say this was not easy. I had to for certain stories. Uh, I would start typing and I would walk away from them for days. Um, the one about my dog, uh, honestly, because it was so fresh, I I deferred that multiple times, like for a long span of the writing mm-hmm. journey. I mean, I don't know. It, it could have been over a month that I started the story and couldn't quite finish wow. it kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. I can imagine that and having... I, Man, I... <laughs> You you made me a little like oh no I'm gonna have to go through this when my dog yeah. passes because you know dogs don't live forever pets don't live True. forever and I'm gonna have to go through this and uh, yeah no that's I mean we're just in the attachment phase of getting to know our dog over the last year or so and so we're gonna we're yeah gonna miss yeah. him and someday you know, yeah oh yeah you know and and uh, you know the thing I draw out in that chapter is that. We, we get to ask ourselves a question, whether it's a dog or someone in our life, you know, a human being, we get to ask ourselves a question, is love worth the risk of the pain that's inevitable in relationships? There, there, there is no human earthly relationship that doesn't eventually lead to pain somewhere. Even if, let's pretend it were possible that me and my spouse, my, you know, my wife, Lauren, if it were possible for the two of us to live our entire marriage without a fight, without a problem, you know, we were able to just be honest and vulnerable. And it was like the perfect, perfect marriage. Um, even in that scenario, one of us will get a disease and die. And there is risk our entire relationship in investing so much of our heart and you know, love into that relationship that one day that's going to be taken away from us, you know? And so, and that's not, you know, that's a very extreme sort of example to say, love is always a risk in a broken world. And um, that, that is something that I learned with mm. my dog. And I, I guess I was just going to connect that to say, it's worth it. Like even with your dog, it is worth it. And it will rip your heart out. And don't brace yourself for that. Just love, just love. We are recording this and your book is launching 
where we are seeing light at the end of the pandemic tunnel here. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure that, <laughs> I'm sure quarantine and being in lockdowns helped you uh, be required to stay at home and focus on your book and stuff. But outside mm-hmm. of those sort of uh, practical, you know, things, practical effects, has the pandemic helped you attach to your readers? Because now more people have experienced painful points. Like, mm-hmm. I, I'm not going to say that everyone before was like, you know, everything was hunky-dory in everyone's lives, obviously. Sure. So there, there, sure. that's like one part of the question. It's like, well, how has that affected, you know, ability to connect and sort of, you know, wrap up the book in the last year and have it, you know, kind of finalized? Mm-hmm. On the other hand, do you kind of also wish you had had it ready for people to read during the pandemic? Both great questions. Um, so as far as relating to my readers and the whole process, if I, I'm going to try and remember this right, but I think my first draft, and there's like four drafts or so of this book that eventually I walked through over the last year. The first draft, I think, was turned in mid, probably late March. So that means the shutdown had just happened about when my first draft was turned in. And now that first draft is, although not radically different, it's quite a bit different um, because, you know, I was coming in with the, 2019, that's the worst year ever in energy. You know, that that was some of the energy I was holding with others and culturally, you know, a lot of people hated 2019 for all kinds of reasons. You you got the good riddance 2019 Facebook update as you know, we're stepping into 2020. And then of course 2020 goes an interesting pandemic-y direction. So, so it was really interesting. My beer. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. So it's like Man, so as I was doing my revisions and refining the content of this book, now we're in the middle of a pandemic. And not only was I able to bring, you know, occasionally bring some of that into the content itself, but it was like, oh, people are really aching right now. Like there's this new ache in human beings everywhere. Doesn't matter where you are. I mean, different people had it better than others, but, you know, this pandemic has not been good for anybody. And, um, no, I think there is a deep level that by accident, my book and, and what I was wrestling with connects with people in a very unique way. You know, when I announced the book and when, um, you know, I've had some like big updates about it, I can just sense the, the desire for like a spiritual cathartic moment that many people have uh, as they reflect about, oh my gosh, that's such a needed message right now, or that's something I know I need or, you know, and so it's been interesting in that way. Um, certainly I didn't plan the, the pandemic, you know, but it just how it all came, came together was interesting. Now having this book during the pandemic, I, I don't know. Um, I think, I think we're, we're still in a place, you know, we're in March, we're at a year at this point, there's going to be a lot of pain to unpack for a long time. Yeah. Um, and so hopefully as the light at the end of the tunnel becomes brighter, this book can be both that bright light and also that um, that calming invitation. Hey, don't walk away from your pain and the darkness that you've just experienced. You you could process that. You can grow through that with Jesus, you know? So I, I, I think as far as timing, I'm like, oh man, I, I hope this is helpful. And I yeah, I don't regret that it's coming out now. I think it's probably going to be as helpful as it can be um, because yeah. of the circumstance. Yeah, well, that's good. 
So I want to jump into a little more of the content of the book. Uh, we've kind of done a lot of uh, lead up to it and and some of the effects and stuff. So you have two objectives. You kind of state this at the outset that you want to lean into the tension between hope and pain mm-hmm. because a lot of people, I think, don't connect the idea of hope and pain. Yeah. And then you also want to sort of do a manifesto on Jesus's humanity. Like, yeah. What is what does that look like? And that was actually the part of the book that was initially attractive to me. It's like, oh, I need to know this to get to know mm-hmm. the Jesus and be like, all right, how was Jesus human? How is that relevant to me? And how is that mm-hmm. how is that not only correct theologically? Because I I don't know any of our listeners who would say that's not correct. Right. You know, we fully acknowledge Jesus was fully human. What does that even mean? And so I would say it start with maybe a few episodes in Jesus's life that you found demonstrate his humanity in ways that were surprising or I want to say deeply moving. That's not quite the right word, but like something that we can typically connect with, you know, walking on water is a little weird one for me because it's like, well, we're not going to do that. Yeah. But there are yeah. other situations like weeping and grieving and some other things. So I'll, I'll let you kind of decide what some of the ones that, were, that stood out to you or, or maybe just came first in the manuscript, if you will. Yeah, no, that's good. You know, honestly, walking on water was one that was early on in the, the manuscript. Oh, really? Um, <laughs> oh, yeah. And I'll tell you why. And then I'll go to the ones that maybe connect quicker. Because for me, as, as I look at Jesus, we quickly run to, oh, that was so impressive. That's God stuff. You know what I mean? And what I try and do is say, yeah, there's, there's, of course, Jesus is God and all of that. But, you know, what if walking on water is actually one of the most human things Jesus ever does? And I kind of break down like, you know, the water, the sea is considered an image of evil. And the ancient Jews believed there were demonic beasts that lived in the sea. If you go out on sea, you're going to get shipwrecked. And, you know, there, there's a lot of like demonic imagery connected to the sea. And so when Jesus walks out on the sea, in one sense, you might say, well, as God, Jesus is trampling evil. Of course, I I affirm that. But as the fully human one, Jesus is showing his like lordship over the elements that are chaotic. Jesus actually, by trampling the sea, is, is demonstrating something that was always supposed to be there in the beginning. This idea that human beings are the stewards and um, overseers of God's good world. And so if something in God's good world has gone wrong, the image bearer of God is able to step in and against those forces. And that's what Jesus does when he calms the sea. That's what Jesus does when he tramples the sea. And, Mm. And, you know, it's easy to think, oh, well, this doesn't relate to my life. And then you look at Peter and I'm like, oh, but it does, it does. Because... Yeah, we might think of Peter as ambitious and naively faithful in that moment. And I think all of that's probably true. But I think there's also this element of Peter saw his teacher, this human being doing something that if his teacher can do it, I've got to do it too, you know? And so there's something about letting go of the things that hold us back. Um, And so Peter does. And you know, I don't think Jesus was using X-Men powers to help Peter levitate on the water. I think this was a moment where Peter's deeply human self came to the surface through the power and presence of God's spirit and all of that. Mm. But there's something deeply, at least at the metaphorical level and probably at the practical level that says walking on water is a human thing to do. Now, I don't plan to go try it. I don't think it's... uh 
possible without a resurrection for anyone besides Jesus or those who are very close to him in proximity. But I do believe that there is a ton of human stuff, even in that story. Okay, so let's get to real obvious examples, though. I think the most obvious example for me is Jesus weeping. There's no doubt. And, mm-hmm. you know, it's the two, it, at least in the NIV, right? Jesus wept. It's the shortest English verse in the whole Bible. And I am constantly finding such, how do I put it? When Jesus weeps, it's it's something that makes Jesus no longer unattainable in the sense that, you know, Jesus has it all together or whatever, whatever modern right. things we would say about men who have it all together, they're composed, they're not weak. Jesus is willing to show weakness and, and not only show weakness, but it's, it's actually strength in my opinion. So he's, he, his friend dies and Jesus knows that he has the power to resurrect him, but instead says, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stop and I'm going to weep for a minute. And when I'm done weeping, I'll move in and we'll do something powerful, you know? Um, Jesus is looking over Jerusalem. This is the other time he cries. And I, I do a full chapter on this incident where Jesus is looking at Jerusalem, says, why didn't you recognize your visitation from, from God? Like, this is the moment. And instead you want to fight the Romans. And eventually they will fight the Romans. And Jesus predicts that. And it doesn't go well for the, the zealot people who remain in Jerusalem, you know, um, that later in that generation. And so, so um, there's something deeply moving about God becoming human and crying. I, I just can't get around that. Um, and, and when I see Jesus willing to cry over suffering and, and suffering of people that he disagrees with, while also like all the innocent people that would be connected by happenstance, you know, but he's, he's weeping for people he disagrees with. Mm. That to me is like, man, we need more people willing to weep for those we disagree with in a culture like ours. And so I, I just find it super compelling. Um, you know, and his moment in the Garden of Gethsemane, of course, is deeply compelling. Um, but there's, there's other moments where he steps in and um, a woman is accused of adultery and they want to throw rocks at her. And he just like steps in with this like amazing wisdom. I mean, he's like, he's like Jedi Jesus in that moment or something, <laughs> you know? And, and just breaks through all of the pretense, all of the junk. Um, so I, I just, yeah, I'm impressed with Jesus uh, in so many ways. And there's other examples. Those are the ones that just came to mind uh, quickly. But yeah. yeah. The one that I was attracted to, and maybe this is just, you know, the time of year in my world of business and things like that. It's like, mm-hmm. uh, or just generally as a parent, is that Jesus was worn out and exhausted at times. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, that's what he, I mean, he goes to the desert to be tempted for 40 days, you know, um, you, you nailed it. He, he's exhausted there. He's, he, he has bad weeks. You know what I mean? Like he, he goes, um, he can go on streaks of just terrible weeks of, you know, his, his uh, John the Baptist dies and a bunch of stuff goes wrong. And yet here's these people that want to be fed. I mean, there's, you know, mm-hmm. Jesus is exhausted and he can't get away from the crowds to get a nap in. And then when he does get a nap in, there's a storm, you know, and now people are like, hey, fix the storm, Jesus. You know, so it's like, goodness, I, I think Jesus gets the exhaustion. Um, what a, what, yeah, good, good thing to highlight. Yeah. 
Well, I think I think any parent knows that they need they need a god who relates to exhaustion. <laughs> yeah, 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 and, and that's really important, right? That it's an on the ground experience God has had through Jesus as the fully human one, not some distant God up in the clouds somewhere who's observing. God has subjectively experienced this, not just objectively. You know, and that's I think that's mm-hmm. that's got to mean something for our lives as followers of Jesus. Yeah, that I think that is where, and honestly, that was where I was hoping your book would come through, and it did. And on the sort of like, God is up there, but I know he's also down here, and I don't know how to connect that. And then, of course, mm-hmm. as I explained earlier, you did that for me. Um, the other thing that is interesting is that Jesus's miracles, we often, and, and I don't think it's true of, well, I don't know how to say this, but I don't know if it's like, you can split it up and be like, oh, well, this is where he shows his divinity and this is where he shows his humanity when it comes to the mm-hmm, miracles. But right. they're more than just, hey, look at me, I'm God. Yeah. You know, um, yeah. they're more than just Jesus displaying the power of the Father. Um, can you go into that a little bit? Because I I really, I wouldn't say I connect, I don't want to use the say, I don't want to say I didn't connect with it, but it was something that was like, oh, I hadn't thought of that before is connecting the miracles to Jesus's humanity um, instead of just mm-hmm. attaching them to God's status. Yeah, no, that's really good. And um, for listeners, I, I know there's probably listeners of all sorts. I don't come from a, you know, I'm not like a, a Pentecostal. Um, I don't come from a charismatic denomination. I wasn't raised in that. I do consider myself like a, yeah, I, I believe in the gifts of the spirit. I've, stumbled into them, but it's not like my tradition is that, you know, I, I was raised a a Mennonite. So it's, um, it's, you, you kind of just discover because you have, if you got any quieter, you'd be a Presbyterian. I know. Well, there you go. So, so I mean, you know, I I was just in good humor. All my Presbyterian listeners. (laughs) You just got like a thousand unsubscribes right now, just because of that. Um, The funny thing is so, they often tell those jokes about themselves, so it's okay. Exactly, exactly. Anyway, you weren't uh, a Pentecostal. You grew up in I that. wasn't. I mean, I, I definitely uh, consider myself a, a charismatic, or what's the word that people use these days? Continuationist, right? I'm totally mm. now a continuationist. But, um, you know, I don't approach this as like, because I'm a Pentecostal, I, I want to make sure that the miracles get connected to being human because that's what it's all about for us as human beings, right? Like that's not where my mind goes initially. For me, the miracles make sense if Jesus is fully empowered by the Holy Spirit, right? No long, no, no wonder Paul will use the metaphor of the body of Christ and says like, you have this gift, you have this other one. You know, it, it took me a while to really connect this. I, I don't say it explicitly in the book, but it's something I've been pondering. It's like the, the body of Christ language is, hey, we collectively can do the sort of thing Jesus did when he was on earth. If we are tapped into the presence of Jesus through the spirit, you know, these are, this is a spirit driven human, uh, human experience, you know? And so, so Jesus does miracles empowered by the spirit as a human. That matters because, well, you think about it this way. And I, I asked N.T. Wright this in a conversation we had for a couple of podcasts ago I did with him. And, and I, I just brought it up. I'm like, 
So talk to me about the miracles, you know, kind of making sure like I was on track as I was writing my book. <laughs> um, <laughs> and he brought something up that I'd forgotten is in several of his books. I think I, think I, I cite it in my book. Um, and he basically says, look, the prophets from the Old Testament, so many of them did miracles. No one said there's God, like never. So for us to think miracles equal God, is kind of a thing we need to sit with and say... In miracles equaling people, the person doing them is God. Right, the incarnate God yeah, yeah, on yeah. the earth, right? Like, like yeah, thank uh, you. Yeah, okay. that, so, so while that's true of Jesus for all kinds of reasons, it's not a one-for-one correlation. Um, and, and this is why Jesus, I think, says, you, you folks will do greater things than I did. Now, I don't know if that greater means like, greater in quantity or greater in effect. I think it's probably quantity. I don't know though. Um, but, but Jesus is very convinced that the kinds of things he does, his disciples would do. And in fact, we see them doing those very things in the New Testament. And so those are very human things to do. When you are in right relationship with God, with other people, with the soil, with yourself, and you're doing all of that within a broken world, your natural disposition towards a broken world is to see brokenness healed. And while that doesn't mean, you know, to be a follower of Jesus, you are therefore, you know, you need a measuring rod of if you don't do these miraculous things and you're not more fully human like him, that's mm -hmm, definitely right. not what I'm saying. That, that'd be crazy talk. I'm simply saying we have to have the full picture and if we don't, we quickly dismiss Jesus to God with a little bit of humanness for a little while, you know? Mm. Um, no, these are, these are very human aspects of who Jesus is. He just happens to do the humanity thing so perfectly that miraculous things can't help but flow out of him. I like that. In your, in, in this book about like, I, I don't think any of our listeners at this point would, would think that this book has any room for political discussion, but you, you actually have a few pages. Um, you, it's sure, interesting I, how you, di you you dip in and out of these topics that I know you're interested in because your podcast content yeah, topics yeah, like that. Yeah. But the book isn't about those things. Yet, I, I just know this is how you approach, like, when Jesus came to earth, it was, a you know, the Roman Empire mm -hmm. was, was a thing, right? And so that totally. meant something. And so you're going to have to talk about it. And, you know, I know our listeners would be, you know, very much appreciate that. So how does this Jesus being human connect to uh, Caesar? <laughs> so one of the things I say in the book is Jesus could have been born in Rome and wasn't. Right, like it's not like Jesus had to be born a um, a Jewish man in this region that becomes called Palestine, you know, in the first century, um, being forced to be born in Bethlehem because of taxation, you know, like like God God could have figured out another way, and yet Jesus is in the heart of the margins rather than the heart of power. Now, what what fascinates me is that on the one hand, Jesus isn't out to like, hey, let's just um, spend a lot of time telling Caesar how bad Caesar is. You know, Jesus doesn't do that. But there's moments, and I, I didn't even get to write about all of them, but there's moments in the gospels where it's clear that there is something at least implicit going on. That when you talk about Jesus being the Lord of the world, Caesar 
is automatically going to be denigrated to not the Lord of the world. Because for whatever reason, the New Testament authors, and I think it's very intentional, and I think um, you know Jesus probably did this himself, uses the New Testament uses the same the same kind of language Caesar would use. Uh, gospel is a Caesar word. The kind of peace that is described is a Caesar word. You know, there, there's a providence is a Caesar word. There's a lot of these words that come up in the language and poetry about Caesar Augustus and all who come after that is very much what we would consider Christian language. So if that's happening, there's no doubt in my mind that Jesus understood his vocation as being alternate, the alternative, the upside down king of the world and was willing to die um, to demonstrate that. Mm. And so, yeah, I'm, I'm thoroughly convinced the Caesar thing is there and the political thing is there, but um, it's not a one for one. You know, there's, there's not perfect parallels from first century politics to how we discuss and debate our politics. You know, there's, um, there's things we have to nuance here. Mm-hmm. So yeah, we've talked about this on our podcast where and in our articles and things like that. And you and I are pretty well aligned here that Jesus was political in a very real sense and that the the message of Jesus is subversive to Rome. Mm-hmm. Um, and I know that there are statements and, and we've talked a little bit about the personal and like how do I personally connect with the, you know, the pain of Jesus, the weeping of Jesus, the grieving, the, all those things. And your book talks about that a lot. Um, but on a broader scale as like, just think of the church, the body of Christ, there is that active peacemaking mission that is part Mm -hmm. of how do we obey and follow in the way of Christ in ways that are carrying out the love of Christ to the world. And so this, this, you know, again, I'm broadening the, the scope here a little bit in our conversation by saying, well, how does this affect the church going out into the world? Mm. Wow. And you, you talk a little bit about internal formation and external transformation. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think in the book, you call it loving in advance, you know, sort of yeah. choosing to love. There's a story, um, I think it's uh, Palestinian Christians who decide they're yeah. going to refuse to be enemies with people. Um, mm. That can be very difficult to do. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. 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 And that's, I, I mean, I think that's one of those areas that um, if, if you want to become more like Jesus, Jesus seems to invite his followers to the inward work, the hard work, the internal work, right? So you bring up love in advance, which is definitely a theme chapter for me, where I look at the Sermon on the Mount and I try and help people find, here's some context stuff that maybe helps anchor this a little bit, but here's really the thread of what the Sermon on the Mount is doing. It's saying you can internalize or or become a certain kind of person who by your own transformation then demonstrates the kind of person you are through living in the world a different way. And this is uh, for me a big freedom from things like legalism. You know, it's not like Jesus says, love your enemies because it's the rule. It's love is both an internal reality that shapes you to act loving in the world towards enemies, you know? So, and that's just an easy example. So I really lean into this example of loving enemies to really say, 
But there's all these other areas, and I eventually connect the fruit of the spirit as mm-hmm. examples of this. And uh, for me, I think it's absolutely critical that we don't just swing to one end, you know, of the fence. Like I grew up in a very personalized, privatized faith experience, and I had a season. I think I shared some of this probably on the last episode with uh, your listeners, but like I had a season where I swung the opposite way. Like, oh yeah, the personal stuff is important. But it really is just about justice and love and mm-hmm. you know doing things in the world. And what I have eventually come to realize is that formation inwardly and transformation of the world, ex- you know, outwardly, these have to be themes in our lives that are closely wed. And um, that has been so freeing for me. Frees me from legalism, but it also frees me for profound relationship with Jesus here and now. And so, um, yeah, I think Jesus is inviting us to be peacemakers in the world. And I, I process some of that kind of stuff out loud. And you'll remember, I, mm-hmm. I kind of say like, hey, I happen to be a pacifist. Remember the Mennonite thing? But we can think about this on a spectrum. Like peacemaking is everyone's vocation who follows Jesus. Um, so becoming peaceful, in other words, the virtue of peace shaping us with Christ is central to being a Jesus person. But we may disagree about where those um, virtues take us. You know, mm-hmm. do we yeah. do we service police or not? Is is war ever okay? You know, all that stuff. But what matters is that we we anchor into the the core things, and I think the core things are things like love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self control. I probably skipped one, but you get the idea. Yeah, yeah. Well, in terms of content on the book, I think that's a great way to end, uh, you know, for this conversation. Um, I do want to have you just explain or just talk about one feature of the book, which is that you have these um, formation exercises at the end of Mm -hmm. each chapter. And those are, well, I'll I'll let you describe, you know, what, um, what are those all about? Yeah. Yeah. I think it's definitely a unique feature of a book like this. You know, I don't know that when I go and buy a popular level Christian book that I'm thinking that I'm going to have like Bible studies at the end of everything or whatever uh, exercises. Um, but I, what I'd done in an early draft of the book is I had kind of been sneaking spiritual formation exercises into a couple of chapters. Kind of like I, I, had, a, I had a moment where I'm like, actually, stop what you're doing right now take a few minutes and do these things, you know? And, I, and it was kind of built into the flow and it was creative and I actually kind of liked it. Um, I had one really early reader who said, oh man, what a great pedagogical method or whatever. <laughs> but what we ended up noticing is like, oh man, what if, what if every chapter offered something very obvious for people to do with what we just walked through? And so uh, my editor really... Uh, who, who's great, Paul was just like, I think you should do it for every chapter. And I said, I think I'd make that happen. I, I think we can really do something mm. special. So um, it wasn't originally part of the book, but towards the late part of uh, editing our draft, we got to a point where I was like, hey, these formation exper- experiences or uh, exercises uh, is what I call them. Uh, I can give a quick summary of the chapter and then I can do some, offer some reflection some scripture reading, some journaling. Sometimes it's, uh, yeah, sometimes it feels kind of like Lexio Divina, if anyone's done that, mm-hmm. or imaginative prayer. Sometimes it's like, go make a list of all the people who have loved you well 
and consider talking to them about it. You know, so so there's different kinds of things. So this book went from a a, a um, for lack of a better word, like spiritually therapeutic slash theological book to those things plus full blown spiritual formation book. Mm-hmm. And that that to me is actually right where where experientially I live. And so um, yeah, I'm I'm really happy we went that direction. Yeah, well, that's really good. So I'm assuming everybody can get the book on Amazon or uh, or Audible. And where can where uh, can they find you online? What are your websites? Uh, that yeah, you yeah, no, that's great. Thanks for that. Um, of course, uh, yeah, there's more info about the book if you just go to echoing echoinghope.com, and there that's actually also built into my website. So you can find my uh, podcast, Theology Curator podcast, there. Um, it's also on Apple and pretty much any podcast feed now. Um, and you can find me on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. I'm active on all three as much as I can be. And it's just my name, K-U-R-T-W-I-L-L-E-M-S. And uh, yeah, there's lots of places you can buy the book. Um, so hope you'll consider buying the book. I'm pretty proud of it. And um, I really hope it helps people. I yeah, that's that's my heart at the end of the day. How how amazing would it be if I spent all of this time working on something that actually helps people find more Jesus in their life? That would be incredible. Well, I have a lot of hope for this. And um, I it, it touched me, as you know, we've mentioned that probably several times. Um, but I look forward to, to knowing your reaction after a few months of uh, hearing from readers and stuff. And Kurt, I know God's using you. So um, I hope we get to talk again. Hey, absolutely. Wow. And thanks for that that blessing. And uh, I look forward to yeah talking more. And thank you to everyone who's listening to this. I really want to just say I appreciate your interest in something like Jesus's humanity and um, Hopefully, if you end up getting the book, let me know and let me know if uh, you have any reflections as you read it. Awesome. Well, Kurt, we'll talk to you again soon sometime. Hey, look forward to it. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Libertarian Christian Podcast. If you liked today's episode, we encourage you to rate us on Apple Podcasts to help expand our audience. If you want to reach out to us, email us at podcast at libertarianchristians.com. You can also reach us at LCI Official on Twitter. And of course, we are on Facebook and have an active group you are welcome to join. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Libertarian Christian Podcast is a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute, a registered 501c3 nonprofit. If you'd like to find out more about LCI, visit us on the web at libertarianchristians.com. The voiceovers are by Matt Bellis and Catherine Williams. As of episode 115, our audio production is provided by Podsworth Media. Check them out at podsworth.com. Thank you.